Section 12 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 8, verses 19 to 39. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of god for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now for the earnest expectation of the creature paul teaches us that an example of patience which he exhorts us to attain is to be met with in brute creatures themselves for omitting all the various expositions i thus understand the language of paul there is no element, no part of the world, which, touched, as it were, with a knowledge of the present misery, is not steadily fixed upon the hope of its resurrection. He proposes, indeed, two subjects. All creatures labour, and yet are supported by hope. Hence appears the immense reward of eternal glory which can excite and carry away all things to the desire of such a blessing. Expectation of the creature waiteth, though an uncommon expression, yet admits of a very appropriate sense, for paul intended to show that the creatures bound under the influence of great anxiety and suspended by a strong desire expected the arrival of that day which will openly present to our view the glory of the sons of god he calls it the revelation of the sons of god when we shall be like god as john says for though we know we are the sons of god yet it doth not appear what we shall be one john three two i have retained paul's words because erasmus's version until the sons of god shall be made manifest appeared to me bolder than the passage sanctions without sufficiently expressing the mind of the apostle for he does not mean that the sons of god would be made manifest in the last day but it would then be apparent how desirable and happy their condition is when freed from their corruption they are clothed in heavenly glory for he therefore attributes hope to creatures without sense that believers may open their eyes to the sight of an invisible life although concealed in the present world under the state of much deformity for the creation is subject to vanity paul declares the design of the expectation from the contrary for since creatures are now subject to corruption they cannot be renewed until the sons of god are restored to a sound state and on this account while they desire their own renewal look for the manifestation of the heavenly kingdom he says they are subject to vanity because they do not abide in a sure, solid, and firm condition, but pass away with a swift course, inconstant and effervescent, for he undoubtedly opposes vanity to an entire and perfect nature. Not willingly. Since the creatures have no judgment, will must certainly be taken in this passage for natural inclination, according to which the whole nature of things is engaged in its own preservation and perfection whatever therefore is kept under corruption suffers violence if against the will and with the opposition and resistance of nature paul personifies the individual parts of the world and introduces them as endued with sense that we may feel more ashamed of our stupidity if we are not elevated to higher hopes by the frail fluctuation of the world which is presented to our view but by reason of him he proposes an example of obedience in all creatures which as he adds arises from hope hence the readiness of the sun moon and all the stars for their uninterrupted course hence the unwearied obedience of the earth in yielding its fruits hence the unceasing agitation and motion of the air hence the promptitude and vigour with which the waters flow because god hath appointed each their particular parts 
nor has he only offered what he wished them to do by a precise and definite command but has at the same time internally impressed upon them the hope of renewal for the whole machine of the world would almost every moment flow away and be dispersed in that melancholy scattered and dissipated state which followed the fall of adam and its individual parts would faint unless they were propped and supported by some hidden firmness derived from some other quarter it would be very dishonourable that the earnest of the spirit should produce less effect in the sons of god than secret hidden instinct effects in dead creatures creatures therefore although by nature they may be inclined to some other object yet because it has been god's pleasure to make them subject to vanity obey his command and because he has given them a hope of a better condition they support themselves in their vain state delaying their desire until the freedom from corruption which has been promised shall be revealed paul attributes to them hope by personification as he before endued them with desire and aversion because the creation itself also he shows how the creature is subject to vanity in hope because the time will indeed arrive when it shall be freed from it as isaiah testifies and peter also confirms with greater clearness we may hence infer how horrible a curse we have merited since all innocent creatures from earth to heaven are punished in consequence of our vices and our offence is the cause of their labouring under corruption and the condemnation of the human race is thus impressed upon heaven earth and all other creatures again it hence appears to how great an excellence of glory the sons of god are to be advanced when all creatures will be called upon to magnify and illustrate its splendour moreover paul does not understand that the creatures will be partakers of the same glory with the sons of god but will participate in their own manner a better state because the creator of all will restore the present fallen world to a perfect and entire condition at the same time with the human race it is neither expedient nor lawful to inquire with greater curiosity into the perfection and entireness which will take place both in cattle plants and metals because the chief part of their excellence will consist in incorruption shrewd speculative but not sober-minded men inquire whether the whole kind and race of animals will be immortal if these speculations are indulged into what labyrinths shall we not finally be hurried let us rest content with this simple doctrine that their temperament will be such and their order so compact and connected that nothing will present deformity or inconstancy to our view for we know that he again repeats the same sentiment that he may pass on to man though what is now stated has the force and form of a conclusion for because creatures are subject to corruption and that not from natural appetites but god's appointment and they have a hope of putting off at some future time their corrupt state it follows that they groan like a woman with child until they be delivered this is a very proper comparison that we may know the groaning he speaks of is not in vain useless nor deadly since it will at last bring forth a joyful and happy fruit creatures in fine are neither content with their present condition nor do they so suffer as to pine away without remedy but bring forth because they wait for a renewal at some future period their groaning together does not mean that they are at the same time united with each other by mutual anxiety but he joins them as companions with believers the particle hitherto or until this day is calculated to alleviate the weariness of their long-continued languor for if the creatures have continued in their groanings for so many ages how inexcusable will our effeminacy or indolence be if we faint in the short course of so shadowy a life and not only they but ourselves also which have the first-fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body 
for we are saved by hope but hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth why doth he yet hope for but if we hope for that we see not then do we with patience wait for it not only some consider the apostle wished to exaggerate the dignity of our future happiness because all things desire it with an ardent affection both irrational animals and we who are regenerated by the spirit of god this opinion admits of defence but he appears i think to institute a comparison between the greater and less in the following manner the elements devoid of sense and reason so great is the excellence of our future glory glow with a certain desire for its arrival much more then ought we who are illuminated by the spirit of god to aspire and labour to the utmost for the purpose of attaining so great a quantity of good both by the firmness of our faith and the earnest endeavours of our zeal a twofold feeling is required in believers to groan being loaded with a sense of their present misery and still to expect with patience their deliverance he wishes believers to be so much elevated by the expectation of future blessedness as to overcome by their magnanimity all present troubles not considering their character and situation in this world but their future glory and excellence we which have the first fruits i am by no means pleased with the interpretation of those who explain first fruits to mean a rare and distinguished excellence and to avoid all ambiguity i have preferred beginnings as the best translation for i do not consider it spoken of the apostles alone as these commentators but of all the faithful who being sprinkled in this world with only a few drops of the spirit or after having made great progress being endowed with a certain measure of his grace certainly continue to be still at a great distance from perfection these are the beginnings or first fruits of the apostle to which the entire and complete returns are opposed for we need not wonder at our being moved with trouble and disquieted because we have not yet had the spirit bestowed upon us in his fulness paul repeats ourselves and adds in ourselves for effect that he may express our desire in a more ardent manner he mentions also groans as well as desires because where a sense of misery is felt groaning necessarily follows waiting for the adoption adoption is here termed improperly but not without the very best reason the enjoyment of the inheritance into which we have been adopted for paul means the eternal decree of god by which he hath chosen us to himself for sons before the foundation of the world concerning which also he affords us witnesses by the gospel and seals the faith of it on our hearts by the spirit would be useless and vain unless the promised resurrection which is its effect was certain and undoubted for why is god our father but that a heavenly inheritance might receive us after finishing our earthly pilgrimage the redemption of our body which is afterwards subjoined impresses upon us the same truth for the price of our redemption was so paid by christ that death keeps us still bound by its chains nay we carry it within us and it hence follows that the sacrifice of the death of christ would be unfruitful and vain unless its fruits should appear in our renewal in heaven for we are saved by hope paul confirms his exhortation by another argument because indeed our salvation cannot be separated from a species of death and he proves this from the nature of hope for as hope extends itself to subjects not yet fully discovered and represents an image to our minds of things hidden and far remote no expectation can be entertained either concerning any object which is either openly seen or held in possession by the hand paul takes it for granted which cannot be denied that our salvation as long as we continue in this world is founded in hope 
and, as a consequence, it is lodged with God far above our senses. The expression, hope that is seen, may appear harsh, but it does not obscure the sense, for he simply wishes to teach us that hope is never joined with open possession, since it relates to a future, not a present good. If groaning, therefore, is grievous to any, the order laid down by God is necessarily subverted, who never calls his children to a triumph until he has exercised them in the warfare of suffering. Since God has thought fit to cherish, as it were, our salvation in his secret bosom, it is expedient for us to labour in this world, to be oppressed, to lament, be afflicted, nay, to lie as half dead, or to resemble the dead. For such as desire a visible salvation withdraw themselves from it when they renounce hope, which is ordained its guardian by divine appointment. But if we hope for that we see not. The argument is taken from the antecedent to the consequent, because patience necessarily follows hope. For if it is troublesome to want a desired good, you must necessarily fall into despair unless you support and comfort yourself by patience. Hope, therefore, always draws patience along with it as a companion. The conclusion is very appropriate, that all the promises of the gospel concerning the glory of the resurrection vanish unless we spend our present life in bearing with patience our crosses and tribulations. For, if our life is invisible, we must necessarily keep death before our eyes, and if glory is invisible, therefore ignominy and disgrace is our present state. Paul's arguments, if you wish to include the whole passage in a few words, may be placed in the following form. The salvation of all the pious is laid up in hope. To be attentively fixed on future and absent goods is the peculiar property of hope. The salvation, therefore, of believers is hidden and concealed. Hope can be supported only by patience. Therefore, the salvation of believers is fulfilled only by the same virtue. We have here also a striking passage to show that patience is the inseparable companion of faith, and the reason is plain because while we comfort ourselves with the hope of a better condition, the sense of our present miseries is softened and mitigated, and they are borne with less difficulty. Likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God likewise the spirit also to prevent believers from objecting their own imbecility as being inadequate to support so many and such heavy burdens paul offers them the assistance of the spirit as abundantly sufficient to overcome all their difficulties let none complain of bearing the cross as above their powers since we are supplied with heavenly assistance and strength the Greek word is very expressive because, indeed, the spirit takes itself part of the burden which oppresses our weakness, and not only affords us aid and succour, but so lightens us as to join at the same time in undergoing with us the heavy load. The expression infirmities, in the plural number, increases the force of the passage, for since experience shows us to be threatened with numberless ruins, unless God upholds with his hand, Paul admonishes us that the Spirit of God will afford sufficient protection, although our weakness should pervade every part, and our various infirmities threaten us with a fall, and his assistance will prevent us from ever being destroyed by any violence, or buried under any heap of evils. But these supplies of the Spirit teach us with greater certainty that God has ordained us to struggle earnestly for our redemption by sighs and groans. For we know not what we should pray for. 
he had already spoken of the testimony of the spirit by which we become acquainted with god the father and we dare relying on this invoke him as a father he now again repeats the second part of our calling on the lord and says the same spirit teaches us in what manner we ought to lift up our cry to god and what petitions we ought to ask of him in prayer paul hath seasonably joined prayers with the anxious desires of the pious because god does not therefore afflict them with troubles that they may inwardly indulge and foster their hidden grief but free themselves from their burdens by prayer and thus exercise their faith various expositions are i know given of this passage but in my opinion paul simply wishes to impress upon his readers that we are blind in offering our petitions to god for although we feel our evils yet the entanglement perplexity and confusion of our mind are too great to allow us to make a proper choice of what suits our wants or is expedient for our necessities a rule it may be objected is prescribed us in the word of god and in reply i answer our affections remain notwithstanding such assistance sunk in darkness until they are directed by the light of the spirit of truth and love but the spirit himself maketh intercession although it may not yet in reality or from the event appear that god has heard our prayers yet paul concludes that the presence of heavenly grace shines forth in the very earnest desire to pray because none could of his own accord conceive holy and pious supplications unbelievers indeed foolishly utter their prayers but with a mere mocking of god because they are neither distinguished by sincerity nor seriousness nor are they formed in a proper manner the spirit therefore must necessarily dictate the method of presenting a good prayer groans which burst forth by the impulse of the spirit are termed unutterable because they far exceed the comprehension of our understanding the spirit of god is said to intercede not because he suppliantly humbles himself to pray or groan but excites in our minds those requests with which it is proper for us to importune our god and he afterwards so affects our hearts that they enter heaven itself by their ardour paul uses this language that he might more forcibly and significantly attribute the whole to the grace of the spirit we are ordered indeed to knock but none can of his own accord premeditate one syllable unless god knocks at our hearts by the secret impulse of his holy spirit and thus opens our soul to admit his entrance and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth the mind of the spirit a remarkable reason for confirming our confidence because god hears us while our prayers proceed from his spirit for he is intimately acquainted with our prayers as being the thoughts of his spirit there is great propriety in using the word knoweth for it means that god does not observe these affections in the spirit as new and uncommon or reject them as absurd but acknowledges and at the same time kindly receives them since they are recognized and approved by the god of grace as paul therefore lately testified that god would afford assistance while he conducts us as it were to his bosom so he now adds another comfort that we should not be disappointed in our prayers which are under his regulation the reason is added immediately after because he thus makes us conformable to his pleasure and hence whatever is agreeable to his will by which all things are governed must necessarily be granted we may learn also that our agreement with the will of god must form the chief part in prayer for he cannot be placed under any possible obligation by our own desires we must supplicate god therefore to regulate our prayers agreeably to his pleasure if we are desirous to have them accepted by the lord of all power and we know that all things work together for good to them that love god to them who are called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow 
he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified and we know the troubles of the present life such as paul's conclusion from his former statements rather assist our salvation than retard its progress his using the illative particle does not affect this sense for he frequently in this manner confounds the use of adverbs he also at the same time answers an objection by the inference which he deduces for the judgment and feeling of the flesh complain that god by no means appears to hear our prayers since our afflictions continue always to proceed in the same course the apostle therefore immediately answers though god may not immediately assist his people he does not desert them for by a wonderful contrivance he converts their apparent losses and troubles to be useful in advancing their salvation i do not object to those who prefer reading this sentence detached from the other and make paul adduce it as a new argument to show that we ought not to be grieved or troubled on account of adversity by which our salvation is promoted and assisted paul's design is in the meantime plain although the elect and reprobate are both indifferently liable to the same evils yet there is a great difference for god instructs believers and procures their salvation by afflictions paul it must be remembered is speaking only of adversity to the following effect all events befalling the righteous are so ordered and governed by the special appointment of god that the final issue proves what was considered by the world to be injurious to believers contributes to promote their advantage paul is here speaking of the cross and on this account the observation of augustine though true does not bear on this passage that even the sins of believers are so ordered by the providence of god as to serve rather to the advancement of their salvation than to their injury the love of god it must be observed includes according to paul the whole of piety as in reality on this the whole desire of righteousness depends to them who are the called according to his purpose this sentence seems added as a corrective to prevent the opinion that the faithful obtained so great an advantage from adversity by their own merit because they love god for we know where salvation is considered men willingly begin of their own accord to contrive some preparations by which they may prevent the grace of god paul therefore informs us that those whom he called the worshippers of god had first been elected by him for the order is undoubtedly therefore pointed out that we may know all things which contribute to advance the salvation of the saints depend on the gratuitous adoption of god as the first cause nay paul shows that god does not love believers before they are called by him as in galatians four nine he informs us the galatians were first acknowledged by god before he was known to them it is true afflictions according to paul's position avail to the salvation only of those who love god but the statement of john is equally true that we then begin to love god when he has prevented us by his gratuitous love moreover the calling here mentioned by paul is extensive for it ought not to be confined to the manifestation of election which will be mentioned afterwards but is simply opposed to the course pursued by man as if paul had said believers do not acquire piety of their own exertion but are rather led by the hand of god since he has chosen them for his peculiar people the divine purpose distinctly excludes every invention of men for affording mutual aid to the lord and paul asserts that the causes of our election are to be sought for nowhere else than in the secret good pleasure of god 
this is better shown from ephesians one and two timothy one where the antithesis between the purpose of god and human righteousness is distinctly expressed paul undoubtedly therefore mentioned in a particular manner our salvation to be founded on the election of god that he might pass from this to the chief object which he immediately joined with it namely that afflictions were determined for us by a heavenly decree to conform us to the image of christ and thus connect as it were our salvation by a certain necessary bond with the bearing of the cross for whom he did foreknow he demonstrates therefore from the very order of election that all the afflictions of the faithful are only the manner by which they are made conformable to the image of christ because he had already testified its necessity affliction therefore need not excite in us grief bitterness of sorrow or trouble unless we lament on account of the election of god by which we are foreordained to life and are distressed to represent in our own persons the image of the son of god by which we are prepared for the glory of heaven but the foreknowledge of god here mentioned by paul is not mere prescience as some ignorant unskilled men foolishly imagine but adoption by which he has always separated his children from the reprobates in this sense peter says that believers had been elected to the sanctification of the spirit according to the foreknowledge of god it is a foolish inference of those disputants who say that god has elected such only as he foresaw would be worthy of grace for peter does not flatter believers as if they were elected for their own individual merits but refers their election to the eternal counsel of god and entirely abandons all idea of dignity in this passage also paul repeats in another word what he had lately hinted concerning god's eternal purpose and it hence follows that his knowledge depends on the good pleasure of his will because by adopting whom he would god foreknew nothing out of himself but only marked out those whom he intended to elect the word predestinated is referred to the circumstance of this particular passage for paul only understands god had so determined that all the adopted should bear the image of christ nor has he simply said to be conformed to christ but to his image that he might teach the existence of a living and shining example in christ which is proposed as a pattern and model to all god's children the sum of the whole is our gratuitous adoption in which our salvation consists is inseparable from the other decree namely his appointing us to bear the cross for none can be an heir of heaven who has not first been conformable to the only begotten son of god i prefer the translation that he may be the firstborn rather than might for the original admits of both these constructions moreover paul wished only to observe this in christ's primogeniture if christ possesses a prerogative among all the children of god he was justly given us for a pattern that we might not refuse anything which he has deigned to undergo as therefore our heavenly father testifies by every method the power and dignity bestowed upon his son he wishes all whom he adopts to the inheritance of his kingdom to be conformed to his example for though the condition of the pious differs in kind as there is a variety in the members of the human body yet each individual has a connection with his head as therefore the first begotten supports the name of the family so christ is placed in an elevated degree both that he might surpass believers in honour and by the common mark of brotherhood include all under himself but whom he predestinated them he also called he now has recourse to a climax by which he confirms with a more clear demonstration that our conformity to christ contributes to our salvation by which we are taught the impossibility of separating the cross from our vocation justification and final glory my former remark must be again repeated to enable my readers to understand the mind of the apostle more clearly that predestination does not mean election but god's purpose or decree by which he has appointed his people to bear the cross when believers are as paul informs us called 
he means God no longer keeps concealed with himself what he has determined concerning them, but has disclosed it, that they may bear with equanimity and patience the law enjoined them. For vocation is here distinguished from secret election, as inferior to it. Let none object that each believer is unacquainted with the condition and state appointed him. The apostle says God manifestly displays his secret counsel by his vocation, and this testimony does not consist in external preaching alone, but has the power of the Spirit united with it, because he is treating of the elect, whom God not only invites by his voice, but draws by his internal operation. Justification might be extended not improperly, according to the continued tenor of divine grace, from the calling of the believer to his death, but because this word, through the whole of the epistle, is used by Paul for the gratuitous imputation of righteousness, it is necessary for us to depart from its usual sense. Paul's design is to prevent us from avoiding afflictions by offering us a more precious compensation. And what can be more desirable than to be reconciled to God, that our miseries may be no longer signs of his curse? nor tend to our ruin. He therefore afterwards adds that those who are now weighed down with the cross will enjoy eternal glory, so that they will sustain no loss from their troubles and disgrace. Although the enjoyment of glory is yet displayed in none but our head, yet because we now perceive in him the inheritance of eternal life, his glory produces such confident security of our own that our hope may be justly compared to a present possession." paul according to a hebraism uses the past tense instead of the present paul undoubtedly marks a continued act in this sense god at the same time calls and justifies in hope of salvation those who are now exercised by the cross according to his counsel that their humiliation may not deprive them of any part of their glory for though their present troubles tarnish its lustre before the world yet it shines with undiminished splendour before god and his angels Paul intends to show by this climax that the afflictions of believers, which cause their present humiliation, are intended to confer upon them the glory of the kingdom of heaven, and to bring them to the glory of Christ's resurrection, with whom they are now crucified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. What shall we then say? Having now fully established his point, he breaks forth into exclamations by which he expresses the magnanimity that believers ought to possess, while adversity urges them to despair. He teaches us, by these words, that an invincible fortitude calculated to subdue all trials and temptations is to be found in the fatherly kindness and favour of God, for we know no other opinion is usually formed concerning the love or hatred of God than from the consideration of our present state. Grief, therefore, seizes the mind, removes and destroys all confidence and comfort, when the events which befall us are not propitious but Paul immediately calls them back to a more deep investigation of the principle of divine love, and proves the foolish and ill-timed reasoning of those who stand still beholding with dismay the melancholy spectacle and appearance of the Christian warfare. I grant, indeed, the scourges of the Lord of hosts are, of themselves, deservedly considered signs of his indignation, but since these marks of his wrath are blessed in Christ, Paul orders the saints to take hold, before everything else, of the fatherly love of God, that, trusting and relying upon this shield, they may leap for joy, feeling the greatest security in all their misfortunes. 
god's protection is a brazen wall to us and we may rest safe without fear or care in the midst of all dangers when our heavenly father shows us his kindness paul does not mean that we shall experience no adversity but promises victory against every assault and every description of enemies if god be for us this is the chief and therefore the only prop that can support us in every temptation for if god is not propitious although everything besides should smile upon us yet we can form no conception of certainty and of confidence on the other hand his alone favour is a sufficiently great consolation for all our sorrow a sufficiently powerful protection against all the storms and tempests of evils and misfortunes the numerous testimonies of scripture afford light and evidence to this truth where the saints of god relying on the power of omnipotence alone dare despise every adversity they meet with in the world if i walk in the midst of the shadow of death i shall fear no evil psalm twenty three four in the lord i put my trust how say ye to my soul flee as a bird to the mountain psalm eleven one i will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about psalm three six for there is no power either under or above heaven which can resist the arm of the most high we need not therefore tremble at any mischief that might befall us while he is our defence true confidence therefore in god is at last manifested by the believer who content with his protection dreads nothing so much as despondency the saints are indeed often shaken but never entirely cast down the apostle's advice may be summed up in the following sentence the pious soul ought to stand firm and unshaken relying on the internal testimony of the spirit and cast off all dependence on external things he who spared not his own son since it is of great importance to us to be so fully persuaded of the love of god as to stand undismayed and free from trembling in this our glorying paul therefore produces the price of our reconciliation that he may confirm our confidence in god's favour and it is indeed a remarkable clear and shining evidence of his inestimable love that the father entertained no doubt to expend his son for our salvation hence paul argues from the greater to the less that god will neglect nothing which he foresees may be useful to us since he has nothing either more renowned more precious or more excellent than his only son we ought to be exhorted invigorated and roused by this passage to consider what christ brings us with himself for the purpose of contemplating his invaluable riches for as he is a pledge of god's immense love towards us so he has not been sent to us naked or empty-handed but filled with all heavenly treasures that nothing may be wanting for the complete happiness of those by whom he is possessed to deliver up means to expose to death who shall lay anything to the charge of god's elect the first and chief consolation of the pious in adversity is the sure persuasion of god's fatherly kindness hence our certainty of salvation our calm security of mind by which adversity is sweetened or the bitterness of grief at least mitigated a more fit exhortation therefore to patience cannot be supplied us than a clear understanding of our enjoying god's favour paul therefore makes this confidence the commencement of consolation by which the faithful ought to be strengthened against all evils for since man's salvation is first attacked by accusation and next subverted by condemnation he in the first place removes all danger of accusation for there is one judge alone before whose tribunal we must stand no charge therefore can be brought against us when we are justified by infinite holiness the antithetic parts of the sentence do not appear to be exactly opposed to each other for the two members ought rather to be placed in the following order who shall lay anything to our charge it is christ who intercedes who shall condemn us it is god who justifies 
God's absolution is opposed to condemnation, Christ's defense to accusation. Paul had a reason for transposing the sentence, since he was desirous by arguing, as it is said, from the highest to the lowest, to fortify the children of God with confidence, calculated to ward off to a very great distance all anxiety, perplexity, and fear. He concludes, therefore, more emphatically, that the children of God are not liable to accusation, because the infinite sovereign justifies, than if he had said Christ was their advocate, because he more forcibly shows that the process for trial is stopped at the remote source of justice, when the judge pronounces the defendant to be entirely exempted from guilt, whom the plaintiff was desirous to drag to punishment. The same reasoning also applies to the second antithesis, for he shows believers to be in no danger of condemnation, since Christ, by expiating their sins, has prevented God's judgment, and by his own intercession not only destroys death, but covers their sins by an entire oblivion, so that no account is taken of their guilt. We are, to sum up the whole, not only freed from terror by present remedies when we come to God's tribunal, but the Lord meets us at a distance that he may more completely secure our confidence. Justification, it must be here observed, as we have stated above, means nothing else in the language of Paul but the treating as just those who have been absolved from the divine sentence of condemnation. This is here proved without difficulty by arguing from the position of one contrary position to the subversion of the other, for to absolve and to receive among criminals are direct contraries. Therefore unerring truth will admit no accusation against us, since we are absolved by Jehovah from all blame. For the devil is undoubtedly the accuser of all the pious, the law of God itself and their own conscience also reprove them, but all these combined avail nothing with God the judge, by whom they are justified and acquitted. No adversary, therefore, can shake, much less destroy, our salvation. He likewise so calls them elect as to entertain no doubt of his being in their number. Nor is this, as some sophists falsely state, from special revelation, but from the common judgment of all the pious. Every believer, therefore, from the example of Paul, may apply to his own case what is here mentioned concerning the elect. Otherwise, it would not only be a cold doctrine, but entirely dead, if election was buried in the secret counsel of God. But since we know the Apostle designedly introduces here what every believer ought to adapt to his own purpose, we are all undoubtedly required to examine our own calling, that we may determine whether we be the children of God. Who is he that condemneth? As none can avail anything by accusation where the judge absolves, so there is no condemnation where the demand of the law is satisfied, and the punishment already paid. Christ once discharged the punishment due to our transgressions, and thus acknowledged that he underwent the penalty in our stead for the purpose of delivering us. Whoever, therefore, is desirous to condemn us after this deliverance must recall Christ himself to undergo the pains of death. But he is not only dead, but has risen victorious by his resurrection from the dead, and triumphed over the power of our last enemy. Christ, the Apostle adds, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, by which is signified that he obtains the dominion of heaven and earth, and the full rule and authority of all things, as mentioned Ephesians 1.20. Christ, finally, is so seated, according to Paul, as to be a constant advocate and intercessor in defense of our salvation, and it hence follows every accuser, desirous to condemn us, not only makes Christ's death to be in vain, but wages war with his incomparable power, which was bestowed upon him as an ornament by the Father, who committed to the Messiah, with such distinguished might, the most absolute dominion. This security, so great as to dare triumphantly to vaunt over the devil, death, and sin, and the very gates of hell, ought to be seated in all pious breasts, 
for we have no faith unless we are certainly assured that Christ is ours and the Father reconciled to us in our loving Redeemer. No imagination, therefore, can be conceived more ruinous, pernicious, or destructive than the opinion of the schoolman concerning the uncertainty of faith. Who intercedes? It was necessary to make this express addition, lest the divine majesty of the Saviour should make us tremble. Paul clothes Christ, who from his lofty throne holds all things under his feet, and subject to his authority, with his mediatorial character, on which account it is absurd to tremble at his presence, since he not only kindly and courteously invites us to himself, but appears as intercessor on our account in the presence of his Father. We must not, therefore, measure this intercession by our carnal sense and judgment. We must not consider Jesus to be interceding with the Father in a suppliant posture, on his bended knees, and with stretched out hands. Christ is justly said to intercede, since he constantly appears with his death and resurrection, which act instead of an eternal intercession, and possess the power and efficacy of the most lively pleading, and thus reconcile the Father to us, and make the God of love ready to listen to our entreaties. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Who shall separate? Paul extends this security more largely to objects of an inferior character, nature, and description. For every believer who has the sure confidence of enjoying the divine favour can remain unmoved in the midst of the most grievous afflictions which usually torment mankind to such an extent because they either do not consider these to happen by the providence of God, or interpret them as signs and marks of the divine wrath, or judge themselves to be deserted and forsaken of the Maker of all things, or to expect no termination and issue to their distresses, or do not meditate on a better life or perplex themselves by reasons of a similar nature. The mind, when freed from errors of this description, will easily rest and be quiet. We must, therefore, according to the Apostle, whatever event may occur, stand firm in this belief that God never ceases to care for us, whom he hath once embraced with his love. For he does not simply say, There is nothing which can separate God from his love of us, but Paul is desirous that the knowledge and lively sense of the love manifested by our Father should flourish with so much vigour in our hearts as always to shine forth and display itself in the midst of the greatest darkness in which we are involved by our afflictions. For, as clouds, though they obscure the clear sight of the sun, yet do not entirely deprive us of his brightness, so God sends forth the rays of his grace through the deepest gloom of our adversity to prevent the most violent temptation from overwhelming us with despair. Nay, our faith, supported as it were on wings by the promises of God, should ascend upwards and penetrate heaven itself through all intervening obstacles. Adversity, considered simply by itself, is undoubtedly a sign of God's wrath, but when preceded by pardon and reconciliation, we must lay it down as a fixed principle that God, even when his chastening hand is upon us, never forgets his mercy. Nay, while he puts us in mind of our deserts, he testifies the great regard he has for our salvation, by earnestly entreating and soliciting us to repent. Paul calls it the love of Christ, because the Father has, in some measure, disclosed to us his own bowels of compassion in our Saviour. Since the love of God, therefore, must not be sought out of Christ, Paul is justly entitled to recall us to the tender compassion of our Redeemer, that our faith may behold the serene and shining countenance of our Father in the rays of the grace of our glorious Mediator. 
to conclude no adversity ought to undermine or subvert this faith for if god be kind and favourable in our afflictions we shall continue unshaken by the severest shocks some take the love of christ in a passive sense when we love him as if paul intended to prepare us for enduring our afflictions with invincible fortitude the whole context easily refutes this interpretation and the more clear definition of love given afterwards by paul removes all doubt on this subject shall tribulation or distress or persecution the masculine pronoun used by the apostle implies a secret emphatic sense for he might have said what shall separate us but he preferred the personification of mute beings that he might make us engage in combat with as many champions as there are different kinds of temptations to shake the confidence of our faith these three words are distinguished from each other in the following manner tribulation includes every kind of trouble and sorrow distress means a more inward passion and affection of the mind when from want of knowing what plan to pursue in our conduct we are reduced to great difficulties abraham and lot experienced this anxiety when the former was compelled to expose his wife to prostitution and the latter his daughters because they saw no issue to the perplexities in which they were unexpectedly involved persecution means properly the violence of tyrants by which the children of god are undeservedly harassed and tormented by the wicked and though paul two corinthians four eight says the sons of god cannot be distressed or reduced to straits yet he does not contradict himself for he does not simply free them from anxious solicitude but means that the faithful are rescued from the most entangling trials as is manifested by the examples of abraham and lot as it is written this quotation from scripture is very applicable to the present subject for it hints that we ought not to faint from fear of death since it is almost appointed to the servants of god to have death as it were present before their eyes the miserable oppression of the people of the jews under the tyranny of antiochus is probably described in this psalm for it is expressly stated that he acted with so much cruel tyranny against the worshippers of god from no other cause than his hatred of real and true piety a distinguished testimony in their favour is added namely that they did not even then depart from the covenant of god which paul i think particularly notices nor do the complaints made by the pious in this psalm concerning the unusual calamity with which they were then afflicted afford any reason why believers should be dissatisfied under persecution for since they bear witness to their innocency in proving their grievous oppression by so many evils a satisfactory argument is thus supplied to prove there was nothing new in the lord suffering his saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruel tyranny of the wicked it is evident also this could not take place but for their good since scripture teaches us it is inconsistent with the justice of god to destroy the righteous with the wicked genesis eighteen twenty three nay it is rather a righteous thing with god to recompense tribulation to them that trouble the righteous and rest to those who are troubled to thessalonians one six and seven they afterwards affirm their sufferings to be inflicted on account of the lord and christ pronounces those blessed who are persecuted for righteousness's sake matthew five ten the expression are killed all day long means death so threatens them that such a life differs almost nothing from death we are more than conquerors we always escape with struggling and swim out of the waters of affliction and persecution in which we were plunged i have retained a literal translation of the greek though it is not generally used in latin it sometimes indeed happens that believers seem to have been overcome by their afflictions and to lie as if nearly worn out and destroyed so great is the trial or rather humiliation with which they are afflicted by the lord but an issue is always so granted them in this case that they come off conquerors 
to make believers recognize the source of this invincible courage he again repeats what he had formerly mentioned for he not only teaches that god because we are loved by him places his hand underneath us for the purpose of affording support and protection in our most grievous distresses but confirms the opinion which he has already stated concerning the love of christ this one word puts it beyond a doubt that the apostle is not speaking of the fervour of love by which we are powerfully drawn to god but concerning the fatherly favour of god or christ himself towards us and a persuasion of this firmly fixed in our hearts will always pluck us out of the depths of hell raise us to the light of life and possess sufficient strength to afford us protection for i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord paul for the purpose of confirming us more strongly in the opinions which he has advanced breaks forth in a strain of hyperbolical praise should all beings says the apostle in life or death combine their whole united powers which seem calculated to separate and tear us from god they will accomplish nothing nay the very angels themselves should they endeavour to subvert the foundation of the love of god in christ will inflict upon us no injury nor is the objection valid that angels are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation hebrews one four for the apostle reasons both in this passage and in galatians one eight from what cannot possibly happen we may hence observe how vile all things ought to appear in our sight when compared with the glory of god since we are allowed to abuse even angels themselves for the purpose of asserting his truth angels are meant by principalities or powers who are thus denominated because they are the chief instruments of divine power these two words are added as if angels sounded too low to convey the full meaning of the apostle you may adopt the following interpretation if you prefer it neither angels nor any other high and elevated dominions and powers for we use this manner of expressing our ideas when we speak of objects to us unknown and exceeding our comprehension nor things present nor things to come paul notwithstanding his use of hyperbolical language makes in reality the following assertion that no continued length of time can possibly separate us from the grace of the lord this addition was necessary since we have not only to struggle with sorrow which we experience and feel from present evils but with fear care and trouble which grieve us from the apprehension of impending dangers we need not therefore fear such as the case of the apostle lest the faith of our adoption should be destroyed by the longest possible continuance of evils this passage is plainly opposed to the schoolmen who vainly imagine that none can have any certainty of final perseverance except by the grace and favour of a special revelation which they consider to be a very rare gift this destroys all the faith of a believer which certainly has no existence unless it is extended to death and even after death we on the contrary ought to have sure confidence that the almighty who has begun a good work in us will finish it until the day of our lord jesus which is in christ christ is the bond for he is the well-beloved son in whom the father is well pleased matthew three seventeen if therefore we are joined to god by him we may rest assured of god's inflexible and unwearied favour and good will to us the apostle here speaks more distinctly than before and determines the fountain of love to be in the father and asserts that it flows down to us from christ End of section twelve